bullying program, and contained traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Here I am again. It's uh, time for another episode of the Environmental As Anything show. Thank you for tuning in. And, of course, we will attempt to cover all the news, interviews and analysis that we can cram in. I hope you're having a great day. This is a beautiful summery weather that we've got here at the moment uh, in uh, in the uh, Bunjalung Nation. And I should say thank you to uh, the traditional owners of this land, uh, the people of the Bunjalung Nation, particularly the Widjibal Wyabal people here in and around uh, the Lismore District where I live, work and play. And uh, just should acknowledge, as we all should, I hope, acknowledge that this is stolen land and that we live here uh, on the with the thanks to the hospitality, uh, the, the the forbearance and the patience of uh, the, the the people who have owned this land for uh, around sixty thousand years now. So, uh, thanks to them, and sorry for the mess that we have made here uh, in your country. Hopefully, we can clean it up and uh, aim for a better future together. Um, we will be aiming for a better future, obviously, this week. We're, the voting starts on the referendum, and uh, for far too long, the traditional owners of uh, this land that we call Australia uh, has have been marginalised. They have been ignored. They have not been listened to. They have uh, there's been a concerted effort to wipe them out from the face of the earth with the genocide that has been practised. And it is long past time that we listened to their voice and heard what they have to say for themselves about their own culture, about their own heritage, about the future that they would like to share with us. So we have that opportunity this week to uh, vote in a referendum uh, regarding the establishment of a legal uh, body to, uh, to enshrine uh, that listening process, that voice to Parliament into our Constitution and it is a noble endeavour uh, which, uh, which we should be uh, getting behind. We'll be featuring some prominent voices here today regarding uh, the, the discussion of the, the upcoming vote in that referendum and uh, giving some reasoning behind uh, you know, their positions on that. So we'll be uh, listening uh, for, uh, uh, for that very soon. I'm looking forward to hearing from Dr. Steve Sutton, who has nearly two decades of experience working in and uh, researching bushfires and other natural hazards. And uh, he's going to be talking uh, about the upcoming fire season uh, and uh, the recent conference in Canberra regarding bushfire preparedness and what we've seen in and, and about that in the news uh, around the place. So, uh, you know, obviously important that we all be conscious of the oncoming fire season. Uh, it's likely to be uh, over the next three years as El Nino has been declared and is likely to persist for the next three years. We are likely to build up uh, drier and hotter weather over that three-year period. And at some point, uh, we are likely to uh, exceed all previous uh, expectations for a fire season if, uh, if we... Uh, not prepared for uh, the worst that uh, that we have ever experienced, then we really aren't paying attention to the climate emergency and giving it its proper due. So we need to get on to that. Uh, and of course, uh, yep, yeah, Steve Sutton, Dr. Steve Sutton will give us uh, uh, his uh, considerable expertise uh, on that issue. 
Um, I'm going to be uh, playing some um, some material, as I said, from the, uh, uh, the, the regard from uh, Kerry O'Brien from the Voice Rally that's just been held here in Lismore. Kerry O'Brien, who is one of those uh, uh, iconic Australian uh, voices and an- analysts of the news, uh, and uh, so getting his voice from today's rally, courtesy of Param. Got to say thanks, Param, for being out there and being a roving reporter for Environmental as Anything. Really appreciate it when people have got a story to tell. If they can record what's going on and get me uh, the audio, then I can do what I'm doing today, which is uh, run it hot off the press. Brand new, newsworthy uh, uh, story like that. Uh, always exciting. So thanks, Param, for your great work in that. And thanks for everyone who is uh, contributing to the Environmental as Anything show. Um, could go on about that a bit more. Might do later on. I should mention that again. But uh, also want to talk about forests. And we've got a couple of really good stories or a couple of uh, pre-recorded pieces on forests. So, uh, yep, we'll have a focus on forests, of course, as often is the case because it is such a hot issue in our community. Have a heap of other ones. Oh, I have also got a piece which was put to the wire uh, just this week. And um, that was uh, put together from, uh, we're calling it Justice for Native Forests. And uh, that was uh, the, the piece which uh, came from here, from Environmental as Anything, from uh, the interviews that I've been doing here, put together this week, uh, being sent out to the, uh, the, the nationally uh, syndicated uh, current affairs show on the community radio station, The Wire. We, always, we often listen to uh, episodes of The Wire here on Environmental as Anything, but very few of them actually come from Environmental as Anything. So we'll be playing that as a brief summary and overview of uh, the forest situation. Get up, stand up, listen to your tribal voice, Yothu Yindi, classic track. Uh, All Aussies will be out there bopping along with that one, hopefully. The, uh, the Voice Rally in Lismore has just been, uh, been held today and uh, there's been a great, uh, great turnout there and a whole heap of uh, really inspiring speakers. But uh, uh, Daniel Peramberg was out there uh, recording some of it for uh, us here at Environmental as Anything. He caught uh, Kerry O'Brien, the, uh, the, the legendary uh, former host of the 7.30 Report and ABC uh, stalwart journalist who has been a voice of reason for all of us for many years decades now and uh, speaking uh, there about uh, the upcoming election that we all should be paying attention to this week. So uh, here is Kerry O'Brien at the Voice Rally in Lismore only a couple of hours ago. Because I knew absolutely nothing along with all of my generation and the generations before me about the true history of our nation. And in fact, uh, uh, the preeminent Australian anthropologist of his time, Bill Stanner, uh, when he gave the 1968 Boyer Lectures, he titled them The Great Australian Silence. Yeah. Yeah. And he described uh, the view of the Australian landscape that was presented to us all as a view from a window. But the window was placed in such a way that a very significant and important part of that landscape could not be seen. In other words, Our ignorance was a deliberate state. It suited us better in terms of our leaders and the people who who essentially shaped the post-Arthur Philip continent. 
did not want us to dwell for one minute on how we got to this point of privilege in our lives. And my eyes were opened way more after 1967 when I went to Alice Springs as a very young journalist on an assignment that had nothing to do with Indigenous issues. But, but wherever I looked, wherever I went, I was confronted uh, with, I'll say it, racism at its rawest mm -hmm. and in a way that could not be denied. And I was, that was the beginning of me actually to piecing the picture together uh, by, by looking and listening and speaking to people who had already come to terms with the truths and to understand it and want to do something about it. And I went back there in 1975 for Four Corners, still as a young journalist, to do a story about a young Indigenous woman named Paula Sweet, who had been brutally bashed and died two days later in hospital. And, and as well about the six young Indigenous men who'd been railroaded into prison on the basis of concocted confessions. And it was only because of a man named Jim Downing, a Uniting Church minister who'd come from Redfern to work there with Indigenous people and who took the trouble to learn the Pichindajara language, that he was able to read those confessions and see them for the dishonest concoctions that they were because he understood from a knowledge of their language that they could, pos they could not possibly have used the words that they were purported to have used. That their understanding of white man's terms was, was so minimal that their, their conceptualising of these white concepts was just so different from what was, what was represented uh, in those confessions. The case was thrown out. But it was, it was a mirror to what was happening all over the Territory and in many other parts of Australia in terms of our justice system. And what has changed? What has changed? Which is something I'll come back to. So the truth is that over my 55 years or so as a journalist, uh, more by chance than anything else and, and often by good luck, I've found myself sitting with a ringside seat on history as it's changed. And of course, the more I switched on to Indigenous stories, the more I learnt about the deep injustices, uh, the more I began to take interest in Indigenous stories. And I have covered all of the bases, all of the milestones that have occurred since my early days as a journalist. The, the referendum, uh, the beginning of land rights legislation and the, and the movement around land rights the uh, formation of various voices, including ATSIC, uh, the Mabo judgment and Paul Keating's effort in converting the judgment into legislation that was workable around the country. Uh, and then the WIC judgment, which John Howard used to reverse some of those uh, legislative changes that Keating had made. Uh, and, and the various other things like the Stolen Generations report and the, the uh, Howard government's refusal to properly apologise, to properly say sorry on behalf of the nation, as Kevin Rudd subsequently did. I covered the beginning of the attempts to measure the gaps of inequality that are so stark in this country and to tell a different story to the way we like to mythologise ourselves as egalitarian. So much in contradiction, particularly when we go overseas and lecture other countries about their human rights abuses, while we still, to a very significant degree, turn a blind eye. The abolition of ATSIC, the intervention in the Northern Territory that was supposed to address issues 
by ingrained issues uh, that reflected the, the, the deep impoverishment of those, uh, of those societies, of those communities, by sending in uniformed soldiers as an answer. And that did not work. And in some cases, those issues have gone backwards, as was evidenced in the recent uh, troubles in Alice Springs. Do you know what? If there had been a genuine voice to Parliament that had permanency, that had guarantees of a future, with, with representatives who had had the chance to grow and mature and to, as, as they had their niggles, as they had their hurdles to jump, that they were able to jump them and that if things were going a bit wrong, they could reshape it. They could reshape it in partnership with the Parliament. Instead, it was abolished, ATSIC. Yeah. The intervention would not have happened if ATSIC had still been going. Yeah. Yeah. So one lesson, one stark lesson that I have learned as a journalist and why it was so easy for me to say yes to Thomas Mayer when he rang and asked me if I'd join him in writing our handbook. A handbook based in truth. Yeah. For the whole of my journalistic life, I've sought always to tell the truth, report the truth, and to analyse uh, with a sense of integrity. That is the job. Yes. That's what journalists are supposed to be here for. Yes. It's what allows us to sleep reasonably well at night, despite some of the things we see. This referendum has not divided on political lines. But sorry, before I get to that, just to, to absolutely ram home the reason why this voice is logical, sensible, and, and I think inarguable. Because we have learned from history, and by God, how rarely we do. But history tells us that the failures of policy that are supposed to lift up Indigenous people and put them on a par with the rest of us, that, that those policies fail, where the policy makers do not listen to Indigenous advice. And there have been some outstanding examples of where Indigenous policy has worked and almost invariably it's because Indigenous people who are the ones who are going to be on the receiving end of those policies and often a significant part of delivering them were consulted and were listened to. So you give permanency to this voice which started with Gough Whitlam, 67 referendum, gave the Federal Government for the first time the right uh, to make policy on behalf of Indigenous people to help Indigenous people, not harm them, hopefully. But 72, Gough Whitlam introduced the first genuinely Indigenous voice. After 67, the, uh, the then Prime Minister, Harold Holt, his idea of an Indigenous voice to Parliament was three white men. <laughs> that, was, that was the voice to Parliament on behalf of Indigenous Australians that he was listening to before he disappeared off the beach at Portsea. So one was, a, uh, one was a former head of the Reserve Bank, another was a former diplomat, and the third one was Bill Stanner, who at least had some understanding yeah. of Indigenous issues, but he was not Indigenous. So it went from Gough to Fraser to Hawke to Keating to Howard to Howard and so on. And virtually every time you had a change of government, the voice changed. Occasionally a government came in and wanted to improve it, but as often as not, a, a government came in that either weakened or in the case of John Howard and ATSIC, abolished it. And after Howard, the checkerboard has been the same. Various voices, they've come and they've gone, and we still see the gaps. And in fact, if anything, the gaps in most cases are growing wider. So if you, if you were still struggling to understand why the voice has to be enshrined 
in the Constitution. There it is. With permanence. With permanence. We will see that genuine voice to Parliament, genuinely elected from Indigenous communities, uh, representing and consulting from Indigenous communities and reflecting their opinions and their advice in a formal manner with submissions to the policy process from the time it starts being formulated in government departments, goes through the hands of the Minister into the Cabinet process, then in the form of draft legislation into both Houses of Parliament and through a whole bunch of committee stages. But if the Indigenous voice is there right from the outset, there is some chance that it will have an impact. And, and the end result of that impact down the line will be that we will start to see those gaps close. Not miracles. But we will start to see those gaps close. So I started to say that this referendum has not divided on political lines. Not in the country. In the federal parliament largely it has. But not around the country. I know that there are some traditional Labor supporters who will be voting no. I also know of many Liberal and Conservative voters who will be voting yes. I also know that there will be some Indigenous people who will be voting no. And I also know that the majority of Indigenous peoples on every anecdotal indication I've had from speaking with an awful lot of Elders, Leaders, <coughs> traditional owners and many other Indigenous peoples as I've travelled around this country that the majority of Indigenous people by far are going to vote yes. Guess what? Guess what? Indigenous people are no different to any other person on the face of this planet in this regard or in any real, you know, fundamental human regard. We are all one race of people. To talk about different races is a folly. It's specious. It's shallow. It's intellectually bankrupt. It's just fundamentally wrong. We are all one race of people. Sometimes we have different skin colours, we have different language, we have different culture, but we are all one people and we all have within us the same human values, the same scope for good and the same scope for evil. That is the human story. The thing about Indigenous Australians is, and where it differs, and where it is unique to the world, it is the oldest continuous civilization in the world. 65,000 plus years. It is the one thing it is the one thing that makes our nation unique in the world, is our Indigenous story. And how often have we turned our backs on it? We love it when a Cathy Freeman wins a race. We love it when, a, when a, an Indigenous band makes it big in the world. We love it when we, do, we, we, we have such great feelings off the back of Indigenous effort. And then when it comes to the big questions, so many of us still want to turn our backs on those same people. Kathy Freeman came out recently in support of yes and I'm sure she copped her fair share of abuse as a result of it. I remember the pleasure, the absolute pleasure, I I, 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 the, the unforgettable moments when she won her races at the Sydney Olympics and how that lifted the whole nation. It lifted all of us. Even, even the, the, the most entrenched of the no voters, I would defy them to say that they didn't feel good in that moment. But what did they learn from it? I'll tell you Cathy Freeman's story. It was either her grandfather or great-grandfather, and I saw it in a Who Do You Think You Are program on SBS years ago. Uh, her grandfather or great-grandfather lived in a white town in North Queensland where he worked alongside 
white workers, he lived on the edge of town with his family. And when he dared to suggest that because he was doing the same work as his fellow workers, at least as well as they were, that he should get the same money. Guess what happened? He was sent to what was one step back from a penal community on Palm Island outside Townsville. That's what happened to Cathy Freeman's grandfather or great-grandfather. So when we, when we applauded Cathy Freeman, how many of us understood the effort that it took for Cathy Freeman to get there and to lift herself up in the way she did? Yeah. Or a Marcia Langton, or a Megan Davis, or any of these other Indigenous leaders that we are hearing from today who are so articulate. But it seems that to be that articulate is a sin in the eyes of some. They get branded elites, like as if elite is a pejorative term. It's almost a swear word the way they use it. These things are not this country. These people are not representative of this country. You know, we get urged that we shouldn't use the word racist. I don't want to bandy that word around any more than anybody else. But we can't deny truths. If we want to grow and stay strong and be stronger as a nation, we have to know the whole story. We have to reflect on the whole story. We have to live and breathe it. We have to understand the bad so that we can be better for it. How on earth do we learn from mistakes if we're going to try and hide from them? Yes, there is a streak of racism in this country, as there is in most other countries, as there is in every country in the world that has a colonial history. Because it was the one model that was applied in many different countries and it was based on racism. It was based on trying to make the people who had the land before our ancestors that somehow they were inferior. In the case of the Irish, some of my ancestors, and in the case of Indigenous Australians, Neanderthal. And we still sometimes see those kinds of cartoons today. This country has always had the capacity to be different, to be great. And we show glimmers of it from time to time. And we, and we give ourselves hope as a result of it. We, we have this terrible capacity to take the two steps forward and the one step back or the one step forward and the two steps back. With the, with the minute or two left, I want to just come back to, to this reminder for us all. I doubt that, uh, you know, I, I will respect anybody here who hasn't yet decided to vote yes or who even is clear that they're going to vote no. If they've thought about it. If they've thought about it. But the scare campaigning, the misinformation, the attempts to obfuscate, to confuse, but most, most, most of all to strike fear. The sort of stuff that gets thrown out into the ether and that if some people are struggling to understand it, they clutch onto. The fact is, there is nothing remotely risky about the voice. There is nothing threatening about the voice. There is nothing that is gonna get in the way of indigenous sovereignty. There is nothing that is going to get in the way of the continual progression of treaty-making processes that are already taking place in Victoria, in Queensland, in South Australia, in Tasmania and in the Northern Territory. These things will not be denied in their own way and in their own time. But we are voting on the voice. It is not a voice from Canberra or from Parliament. It is a voice to Canberra. It will be a voice of integrity directly from Indigenous communities representing Indigenous history, Indigenous culture, Indigenous wisdom. And what are Indigenous people asking for? Yes. The right to be heard. Yes. The simple right to be heard. The words in the referendum are simple. They are asking Australians to give Indigenous people 
the right to make representations to government and the parliament on policy matters that will impact on them. It's not going to be about widgets or paper clips. It's not going to be about where we're going to put our nuclear submarines in 140 years time. It's about none of those things. The people who come to the table, if they're represented to be the voice of Indigenous Australia to the government and the parliament, will be there on serious intent. They'll be there with intent to have better policies on housing, on health, on education, on infrastructure, on employment, all those big key things on which we as a nation have failed them. This is not a failure of Indigenous people. This is our failure. And we now have the chance to vote on it. evidence, not just here, but around the world. And and uh, and we, in fact, we've got uh, Marcia Langton and Fiona Stanley, two great Australians, and very knowledgeable Australians, who contributed a chapter to Thomas's and my book on the examples that have worked because of the Indigenous, because Indigenous people have been listened to. But this is, the, but the the international evidence is absolutely overwhelming. To finish, the polls have been telling us that this referendum will be defeated. I think we are seeing a turnaround. I am feeling a turnaround wherever I go. We can't, we can't deny the way the trend has gone, but that trend has been turning and it will turn. And I refuse to believe that we will not have a majority of Australians when it's just them, their head, their heart, their soul going into the ballot box to cast their vote, that we will not have a majority voting yes. What we've seen just in these last few days as one evidence, as one piece of evidence, is that the, the people who are defining themselves as the progressive knows. I'm not, I'm not here to denigrate them and I certainly won't. I certainly won't denigrate a single Indigenous person because of what has happened to them and why would they not be cynical? about the ways they have been let down so many times, so many broken promises over the last two centuries. Vote yes, vote yes, yes, yes. That was the voice of veteran Australian journalist Kerry O'Brien speaking to over 800 people at the Lismore Rally for Yes on the 30th of September. Welcome back to Environmental as Anything. New South Wales state forests have become a battleground. One woman, MJ Johnson, shared with me how she felt compelled to risk a great deal by chaining herself to a logging harvester. Talking on the Environmental as Anything show, she described how her protest ended in arrest. After I was taken off the machine, the police put me in the back of the police car and I just still remember vividly driving off facing the forest and just looking at the loggers started work immediately while I was still in there as well, which was pretty confronting. Ms Johnson recently had her day in Lismore Court, where in the end the magistrate dropped all charges and dismissed her case. A point that MJ's solicitor, Eddie Lloyd, says was a positive sign that the legal tide is turning for forests. She said her defence was successful because in her case to the magistrate, she stressed cultural and social context. We referred to the Australian Institute poll that said 7 out of 10 Australians were wanting native forest logging to end. And the way I kind of 
pictured it was I said over there in one corner you have MJ with all of these people, seven out of ten Australians, the citizens outside court here and right around Australia, all standing in one corner with MJ. And in the other corner, there's the government and they're standing alone. The state government position in terms of the forest is upheld in part by New South Wales Minister for the Environment, Penny Sharp. In a statement, she says of the Great Koala National Park, the government is taking serious steps towards its creation and will work closely with the community, Aboriginal organisations and industry as the area for inclusion in the parks are assessed. But Gumbungir woman and campaigner Sandy Greenwood told me she isn't convinced the government is working closely with the ancestral custodians of Newry Forest. Newry State Forest in particular is, a, is culturally a traditional men's initiation area. Mm -hmm. So Gumbanga men would go there as a part of their initiation to go from boys to men. Mm -hmm. And also in that forest, we have the microbat. And the microbat is the Gumbanga men's totem. The statement released by Penny Sharp suggests that the government will immediately discuss with the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales the next steps for the cessation and determine timber supply options as well as a halt to logging operations in 106 koala hubs within the area being assessed for the park. But president of campaign group North East Forest Alliance, Dylan Pugh, says this falls short of what is needed. Uh, all they need to do is to direct the Environmental Protection Authority to change the logging rules. Uh, that can be changed by the EPA at their discretion. We presented the evidence of all these various changes they could make immediately that are justified within government reports. So instead of the NAT pennies getting them to amend the protocol to only protect these minimal areas of um, uh, called Koala Hub, is a great The government statement released by both Environment Minister Penny Sharp and the Minister for Agricultural and Regional New South Wales, Tara Moriarty, says an expert environmental and cultural heritage assessment will be undertaken to safeguard the unique environmental and cultural heritage of the region. But Gumbungir woman Sandy Greenwood says there is little to give her confidence around the protection of cultural heritage. Unfortunately, a non-Gumbanga person who works at Forestry Corporation signed off on the Cultural Heritage Survey and said there was no cultural heritage in the, in the forest. So that's kind of caused the problem where we're at today, while we had to defend country. Elsewhere, it was announced two years ago that in Western Australia, native forest logging would halt in 2024, while in May this year, Victoria also called it a day. Gecko is an organisation that has campaigned for 30 years against native forest logging in that state. And when I was in Melbourne, I met with Gecko's Fiona York, who described how citizen science and a wave of court cases brought victory for their forest protection campaign. So all of a sudden, here's this government-owned logging agency that is logging against the community's wishes and is making a massive loss because they keep getting sued by greenies. <laughs> so it just wasn't viable anymore. Right. And it was all based on citizen science. So gecko volunteers would be out in the bush trying to find crayfish in gullies in the middle of the night. They'd be spotlighting for greater gliders. They'd be recording it with GPSs and maps and all of that stuff. And that data would then go into the court cases and the court cases would have um, barristers and lawyers and they would, Vic Forest would just be smashed on these points of law. Mm. And, yeah, over a number of years and a number of really big high-profile losses, it just became, like, bad for them in the media and really bad for their bottom line. 
And Fiona York believes the lessons of Victoria can be applied to New South Wales, where the taxpayer is already heavily subsidising the native forest logging process and where a lot of interest will now focus on the multiple court cases ahead. I'm Gail Osborne, the convener of Wombat Forest Care. So our group has nearly 200 members and many more supporters and we're based in the Wombat State Forest near Dalesford. So the Wombat's an amazing forest with many threatened species, powerful owls, greater gliders and now the recently discovered mountain skink. So as the Wombat is a state forest, it's managed for its resources. So timber harvesting and mining are permitted activities. However, the forest was sub the subject of an investigation by the Victorian Environment Assessment Council, who've recommended that the forest be protected in a new Wombat Lerdeberg National Park. The state government agreed to the National Park in 2021, and we are now waiting for the legislation. Also in 2021, there was a severe windstorm that impacted seven, several thousand hectares of forest and there's been a large salvage operation by Vic Forests that's been quite environmentally destructive. So on Tuesday the 26th of September, Lawyers representing Wombat Forest Care successfully sought an interim injunction to halt the logging operation, and that was after Vic Forest refused to confirm that it had un undertaken adequate surveys for threatened species. Our legal team argued that Vic Forest was legally required to conduct comprehensive surveys for threatened species. We had expert evidence from Associate Professor Grant Wardle-Johnson, who made it clear that the surveys for forest owls were inadequate and showed the potential impact that this operation could have on endangered reptiles. So we will be back in court on the 31st of October, so there's not much more I can say for now. Um, <laughs> Australia is much better prepared for this coming season than we were heading into black summer. Uh, we have implemented almost all of the recommendations of the Bushfire Royal Commission that were made to the federal government. Uh, they include establishing one coordinated, coordinated national emergency management agency rather than two separate organisations under two separate ministers, which existed before. Uh, we will actually have more aircraft uh, available for firefighting than we've ever had in this country, including one extra large water bombing aircraft uh, and plenty more helicopters than we've had before. Uh, and I know that the states have done everything they can when it comes to hazard reduction, given the incredibly wet uh, circumstances that we've been in over the last couple of years. Well, no one can guarantee that we won't be facing risk. There will always be risk in a country like Australia, but we're certainly doing everything we possibly can to be prepared. That was uh, the Minister for Agriculture, uh, Murray Watts, the Federal Minister for Agriculture, speaking there about uh, saying, saying that Australia was much better prepared for a bushfire threat than before the black summer. 
Now, uh, of course, we are looking down the barrel as the uh, uh, of the climate emergency, and the uh, the bureau has uh, declared the El Nino uh, to be in full swing. Uh, and uh, so we have uh, we have a lot to think about when it comes to fire. Fortunately, today we have with us, as uh, as I've told you earlier, looking forward to speaking to uh, Stephen Sutton. Uh, Dr. Stephen Sutton has uh, nearly two decades of experience working in and researching bushfires and other natural hazards. Uh, with a background in archaeology and anthropology, his roles have centred around project management and consultation. As Chief Fire Control Officer in the Northern Territory, Steve was responsible for territory-wide bushfire control, hazard reduction and bushfire mitigation and oversaw the operation of the Territory's volunteer bushfire brigades. He's conducted research into the psychology of disaster preparation as well as resilience to hazards in remote Indigenous communities and he is an advocate for grassroots initiatives to weave networks of belonging that foster resilience to climate change and disasters. So a great honour and pleasure to have Stephen on the line. Thank you for joining Environmental as Anything today, uh, Dr Sutton. Uh, look, uh, thank you, Sean. The, the honour and the pleasure is actually all mine. I'm glad to be here and great to talk to you. Yeah, look, it's uh, it, it's obviously, a, you know, a, a, an urgent question for uh, most Australians now. Uh, how's this summer looking? How do you think it's... You, you've been through, you know, some of the worst of it. How do you think this one's comparing? Do you think uh, that uh, Minister Watts has got it right and that we're well prepared for this? The Minister Watts has got it right, but you didn't quote him right. You said well prepared. He said what Minister Watts said is that we're better prepared. Uh-huh. As an old friend of mine said uh, better is not good. Um, uh, the measures that uh, the Senator discussed are all absolutely the things that uh, the ELCA, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, asked for, uh, but they also asked for climate action as well as you know, better response. Mm. What the Minister described was uh, actions that would be available to respond to bushfires, but better prepared for the summer means doing more about reducing the risk. And so when the minister talked about that, he said that the, uh, the states have done as much as they could to reduce the hazard given the season that we've had, a wet, a wet winter. And, of course, all of those things come down to the pointy end of uh, what we're looking at, really in worsening scenarios for bushfire summers with climate change. Mm. Um, and, and so what, what that looks like is that the opportunities to reduce fuels at a landscape level are smaller, uh, so, and so they're harder to, it's harder to achieve adequate levels of fuel reduction. Uh, and then uh, when the fires do come, they're much more intense, uh, and so the resources that we throw at them have to be ever larger. Uh, and there is um, an upper limit to how much you can actually do to stop a bushfire in the, the terrible conditions that we saw in 2019 20. Mm. Yes, it's it's those those shocking uh, conditions. I mean, I was speaking to uh, uh, Joe Dodds from uh, Bushfire 
um, survivors for climate action down on the south coast, and she was describing uh, the how how that catastrophic uh, those catastrophic conditions that they had down there uh, was what, two weeks ago now. Um, but uh, you know, like we're, we're we're creating alarmingly a dangerous situation for them down there. It's 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 not just about uh, uh, doing all we can in the short term, is it? It's about uh, actually reducing the the the, the causes of these uh, the, this climate uh, emergency. Well, there's an old saying that, you know, you need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm. So we need to be moving forward uh, to reduce the, the, the drivers of this worsening weather, which is climate change. So as a nation, we and, uh, and globally, we need to be taking more and more steps to um, ameliorate the uh, increasing, uh, increase in the global temperatures. Uh, and then we also need to be working even harder and trying more resources at um, reducing fuels and getting ready to um, manage fires when they do occur. Mm. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a massive uh, uh, challenge, and uh, so you know, like uh, the. the PM the uh, Albo Albanese is saying that uh, the nation will be prepared to the full ex- extent possible, uh, expe- and he's calling this uh, as the, the the worst bushfire season since the Black Summer, which is not that long ago. So, so right. that you know, is is that really true? Though, you know, are we are we actually as prepared as possible? Um, look, I, I I suspect not. Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, areas, uh, you know, I recently drove through uh, Western New South Wales and South Australia, the Western New South Wales, you know, thousand kilometres of uh, rich grass that will uh, all senesce and become fuel, and it's probably well on its way to being fuel now. Um, fires in those areas can then burn for hundreds of kilometres. Um, I'm not sure if enough's being done. I, I'm, I'm a bit wary to answer it. The question, and I'll tell you why, mm. because a hell of a lot of people are doing a hell of a lot of work and putting yep. a lot of sweat into it, and I don't want to criticise them. No. You know? I don't want to say that, no, no, you haven't done enough, because, you know, they're doing the best they can, but more resources need to be thrown at it. And so at the highest levels, um, there's always an opportunity to increase uh, increase the resources. And it's best done before the fire starts. It's best done with re- um, reducing the fuels before they start. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to take you to cases. So, so in North, I'm in northern Australia at the moment. I'm in central Arnhem Land. Yep. And um, uh, there is a wildfire burning to the south, but there's been an enormous amount of mosaic um, uh, fuel reduction burning across the landscape. And so rather than mobilising a massive force, you've got a small number of rangers um, working to contain the fire uh, across some very narrow gaps in the uh, already burned country. So, you know, but they've already spent four or five months working across the landscape to set up the capacity to stop a wildfire. Mm. And, and I, I just don't uh, see that level of uh, coordinated landscape scale fire management happening in other parts of Australia. Mm. Mm. 
And of course, as you say, those courageous, hardworking men and women out there, you know, putting their lives on the line and working, you know, get, get doing everything possible to 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 ameliorate the uh, the, the crisis. But uh, at the same time, uh, in the Northern Territory, the Beetaloo Basin uh, being, uh, being being set up for fracking and uh, and a whole new you know industry of uh, of gas exports being being established there. It's 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 a it's it's a bitter uh, contradiction, isn't it? Well, you know, it's one of these weird things, Sean. I'm a gas consumer. I, I, I cook on gas, I'm, you know, but my prices just keep going up and up and up. Uh, and despite the fact that we're opening up more uh, gas reserves in Australia, I'm, I, I don't see the benefit, like, on my, on my monthly, three-monthly bill. And I also don't see the benefit in terms of, uh, you know, what's happening with the climate. And so... I think lots of Australians have got to this point where you're starting to be a bit cynical about, well, who's making the money from these, uh, from fracking? Because, you know, I'm not seeing the benefit. Mm. Somebody's clearly benefiting. But then we all suffer because of its contributions to climate change. So, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not a particularly vexed question for me. I just think, you know, we should, and we and my wife are moving away from using gas in the very near future. Mm. Well, wise, wise move. Yes, I've been doing the same thing, and and uh, you know the less the less I have it in the the house and in <laughs> on my food and everywhere around me, I, the the healthier I feel. But um, obviously, there's a bigger picture, isn't there? There's that that whole climate emergency uh, that we are, are responding to. It seems that uh, the the at the top level, not not the not the mid level people who are actually on the ground doing the work, but at the top level, there seems to be a real disconnect uh, in the thinking about uh, about how to deal with these uh, the the, the the, the threats that the climate uh, emergency is, is posing on us. Yeah, look, and, and when it comes to these sorts of discussions, oh, no, I'm a punter with no more wisdom than the person next door. Mm. But, you know, I think that sort of idea, if you're in a canoe and you're heading towards the waterfall and, uh, and you start paddling backwards uh, and someone says, oh, no, no, we've got to keep going, you don't, you don't put your oar in the water and paddle faster. You know, like, <laughs> we, you've got to try and persuade everyone else to stop paddling and get the canoe off the out of the water as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, and that, that seems to me a, a reasonable analogy for what's happening in Australia. People are saying, oh, well, other countries aren't, aren't doing their bit, so we shouldn't either. Well, I, I just reject that. I think we need to lead from the front and um, stop, reduce greenhouse gases as much as, as, and as quickly as possible and persuade as much of the rest of the world to do so at the same time. So there's been a big uh, summit in Canberra this week uh, for bushfire preparedness, and um, I know you haven't been there, but have you heard anything from from others who might have been there, or have you, have you got any impressions of what's go- what might be going on in that uh, uh, that that summit? So, no, I, look, I, I, I'm pretty. Uh, I don't have a lot to uh, of insight into that particular summit, but I can tell you that the sorts of things that uh, happen across uh, jurisdictions, from my own personal experience in the past, is that there's uh, planning is put in place for coordination so that one state can help another during a time of crisis, and we've seen that in the past. Uh, and the Northern Territory has been a contributor to um, various fire emergencies uh, in the previous years, and indeed we've received support from other jurisdictions when we've had crises. Um, so, you know, so a lot of coordination goes into that. Um, there's uh, good development of uh, networks with uh, things like the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, the Bureau of Meteorology are one of the most outstanding institutions in the country mm. in the sense that they really work hard to provide high-quality, real-time data 
that is needed to you know, predict the spread of fires and respond to wildfires, keep firefighters safe. Um, and uh, so they're, they're the sorts of conversations that will be being had uh, in order to make sure that such resources as are available across the nation are utilised as efficiently as they can be. So, so you, know, you know, I think you know, listeners can rest assured that the, uh, the agencies responsible for fire management literally are doing everything they possibly can uh, to uh, reduce the impact uh, with the resources they've got. Mm, yeah, that's right. It's that limitation of how much resources they have. Um, but the... Um so you've been, you know, involved or, you know, like focused on creating networks. You mentioned networking and, um, you know, community grassroots action for this. What would you be advising, you know, listeners that they can be doing now to, to, uh, to respond to the oncoming storm, the oncoming firestorm? Well, I think so all I would be doing is, is, um, is exhausting things that are already happening and is that people need to, you know, speak with your neighbours, get on with your neighbours, uh, you know, uh, find out what their fire management issues are. Uh, if there's a neighbour around, you know, around the back that you don't talk to often but you have a shared boundary, get in contact with them, find them, find out what they're doing, what their, their risk factors are. Um, and then working collectively, you know, with, with or without the resources and support of the state agencies to do what you can to reduce fuels, you know, set up telephone trees for response and so on. Um, the other thing that people can do is find out about their local volunteer bushfire brigade, mm. get in touch with them and see what uh, they can do to help the bushfire, bushfire brigade, not the other way around. Mm. You know, so the bushfire brigade already has a, a, a pretty good idea of what its resources are and where their threats lie, but they don't know what aid lies out in the community in a lot of circumstances. So there's... Um, so in all of these things, I guess I'm saying the same thing, start a dialogue or get involved in a dialogue uh, with your neighbours and your um, immediate uh, bushfire volunteer brigade. Wise words. Look, uh, Stephen, I think that's probably uh, a good moment to, to wrap it up. But uh, just uh, thank you for joining us today on Environmental as Anything and thank you for everything you're doing out there in the, uh, in the field to try to, uh, to, try to you know, address this, uh, this yeah. crisis of fires that we're facing. No, look, thank you. Look, to be honest, I'm not doing much. I'm just doing my level best not to muck it up. And so far, <laughs> people are pretty responsive to that. Mm. That's great. Well, good luck, and we'll talk again soon, hey? Cheers, John. I'd like that. Cheers. That was uh, Dr. Stephen Sutton. Uh, he's, uh, you know, nearly two decades of experience working in uh, bushfire and uh, being the uh, responsible for territory-wide uh, bushfire control in the Northern Territory, hazard reduction, bushfire mitigation and uh, uh, volunteer bushfire brigades up there. So that's... Uh, him offering his words of wisdom. Get to know your neighbours. Speak to them, even if you're uh, not on good terms. Uh, get to, uh, uh, to together with them and work on plans to that you can uh, uh, you can can help protect yourself and your family and your property with. So uh, that's uh, that's good good practical advice there. Uh, so thanks to Stephen for joining Environmentalist Anything today.
I hear voices leading me on, the wise and the strong. Goodness me, split ends, they do resonate through the decades, don't they? Carry on being one of the greatest uh, musical acts of all time, in my personal and humble opinion. But uh, there we go. It's been a, it's been a voice-themed show. Of course, we have the uh, referendum vote starting next week, and uh, hopefully everybody out there is making careful and well-informed choices about uh, hearing those voices. Somebody I know who's been making careful and uh, well-informed choices is uh, Lydia Kindred. I know that because she's a regular listener to the show and uh, a, a regular activist for our return of our public transport system. And she's been out there working hard, uh, trying to clear those railway tracks, and she's joined us right now to share with us what's going on uh, on the tracks around Lismore today. Lydia, thanks for joining Environmental Is Anything again. Oh, thanks, Sean. Thanks for letting me uh, speak again. Always welcome, mate. It's always good to hear what progress is being made. So you're saying you're making progress on clearing the railway tracks for this we, degradation we, study? That's right, yeah. We uh, we haven't quite got to the Lismore end yet. Um, we've started at, in the Byron Shire and we're focusing on getting um, most of that done before we start going into the Lismore Shire as well. But um, we are putting out for people if they'd like to volunteer to help us do a bit of it's not full clearing it's semi-clearing so that the experts can come in and see just how many sleepers are needed how good the tracks are we're finding that on the whole they're in very good condition Mm. uh the tracks are really good there's a one in four at least of the steel sleepers which is almost the same it is the same as the main railway line going up through new south wales but uh we are really we know that there's there's of course work still to be done of course to bring it bring it really up to the point where it can run regular services in a you know pretty reasonable sort of time mm. rather than just go slow so we are really working to clear and to get to get the um, degradation study done uh, which for Byron Shire is is to be finished by December and um, it will be really good to know the real cost of of what it will be to bring to fix the tracks to bring the services back, mm. and because yeah, we, we were given um, granted licenses. Um, Northern Regional Railway Company was granted the license in the Byron Shire uh, earlier this year, and um, by UGL, who took over from John Holland, who weren't doing a great job keeping the, the railway lines maintained, as most people will know. Yep. UGL are a much more um, welcoming company to work with. They're much more into community, which is fantastic. And um, they've been working... And uh, Transport for New South Wales also gave us the licences. Um, and our company, Northern Regional Railway Company, uh, is actually, uh, since August, the early August this year, was, was granted a licence for a year mm-hmm. to do the Lismore section from Bangalore to Lismore. So that's what you're so, in the middle of now. And so what are you asking for people to do? How can they get in touch with you, uh, you know? If they can, if they can contact us at um, uh, well, northernriversrail.com.au, our website. You can put your name down as a potential volunteer. You have to do a couple of induction courses online, um, and uh, it costs about ninety-five dollars. So I have to warn you, but it's really a wonderful thing to be able to get on those tracks and help the cause, so that we're moving it forward towards getting train services back again. 
And uh, once we have that degradation study, that's a, the first step towards getting the business case um, out there to investors, people who may be able to help us pay for it. We're not putting it onto the government at this stage to do it. If they want to give us a grant or two in the future, well, that would be lovely. But uh, we don't, you know, we're, we're saying it's not going to cost the taxpayer any money. Uh, we really plan to get it happening, first of all, Byron to Mullumbimby as the first um, journey, part of the journey, then up to Bangalore from Byron. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we've been clearing today. We did quite a long section and uh, it's, it's pretty well done between Bangalore and Byron and beyond, going towards Lismore a little bit now. And, uh, and then we're, we're working our way through to Mullumbimby as well at Tiagra. And, uh, yeah, and then beyond. And we also have all the way up to Yelgan. So we're just asking people if, yeah, if they want to join us, that would be great. Just letting you know that there is hope. And we are wanting to have the bike path there as well, but we don't want them to pull the tracks up in the mm. process mm. of getting a bicycle path. Or, you know, we, we can have yeah. both. It's not a rail trail unless it's got rails. Yeah, the rail trail without the rail. Yeah, we it's need a trail without the rail. It needs to be needs to have rails if it's going to be a rail trail. All right, yeah. look, uh, Lydia, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for for ringing us into to uh, to that uh, that news. And uh, just give me that URL quickly before we go again. Okay, northernriversrail.com.au. Northernriversrail.com.au. Um, and, yeah, that would and be it, great if people want to join us. That'd be fantastic. Awesome. Join the team. Good on you. Great work. And uh, we'll we'll talk again much. soon. Keep us posted. Hey. Yeah. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. okay, that was Lydia Kindred, who's a, a, a tireless worker for the return of uh, public transport uh, to our railway lines here on the Northern Rivers and uh, out there actually doing the hard yards, uh, clearing those tracks to make it possible to assess the costs of, uh, of getting them back out, back in action. Fantastic. Well, what has been fantastic is being, being with you today. Thank you so much for your company. This is uh, the final uh, moments of Environmental as Anything for another week. Please uh, do tune in again next week. Uh, for those of you who are footy obsessed or at least vaguely uh, interested, uh, the, the, the lines are behind again now. It's Collingwood 77 to the Lions 71. So uh, it looked like the Lions might be going to get up, but they've only got a few minutes left in the game themselves, I would suggest. But uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, please uh, be uh, gentle with yourself, be kind to each other, and remember we are all in this together. I'll see you next week. In the meantime, um, I'm going to leave you with... The, uh, the the finale song for this voice-themed show, which is, of course, You're the Voice from Johnny Farnham.